0: Welcome to a very special holiday edition of One Day Closer to Dead. I am Dave Audry. And I am Jason Bailey. And Jason, uh, you were sounding closer to dead before we started air today. How are you doing?
1: I'm okay. I have a massive fucking head cold that's been going on for a couple of days. So, you know, celebrating Thanksgiving in style. Should be an interesting show. I'm on a lot of Benadryl and coffee just to get me through this fucking thing. So... There we are. It's not really an Irish coffee. It's more like uh, I'm gonna call it the hay fever. I'll have a nice hot cup of hay fever, please. Benadryl and scorching hot coffee, so good to go.
0: Nice. On my end, uh I am fighting a migraine, because of course I am. And then um also got engaged a couple <laughs> days ago. No! Get the fuck out of here. Were you on the, way the out hell heard anybody giving you a heads up?
1: Son, I am not on social media. This is as social and immediate as I get. Are you, are you fucking joking right now? No, sir. Oh my God. Brother, uh, congratulations. That's, uh, that's amazing. Congratulations. That's, I'm just stunned. So, uh, thanks for, uh, completely, uh, just absolutely stunning me right here at the beginning of the fucking show. Well, good job. What, what, uh, what caused you to do this? What, what got into your mind to go? You know what? Now's the time.
0: Well, that sounded optimistic. Well, it's. Uh... The, the special occasion is, uh, as I think you were alluding to, though I don't know if you knew this specifically, it was, uh, it was actually Jamie's birthday several days ago. So, uh, I, I cor- correlated, uh, the two things, the, the two things together. There are no, um, like plans on dates or, you know, anything of that nature. Of course, you will be among the first to know that. Once, uh, once those things are decided upon, but um, you know, I figure we'll kind of enjoy the experience in the process, and you know, enjoy the holidays, and then uh, worry about logistics later. But yeah, that's the uh, the news uh, on my end. And then also, as announced last week, I also, um, unrelated, launched a, a Patreon. So um, thanks to those that have checked that out and have started participating. Uh, next week will be the first uh, the first week of After Dead. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, you can check that out at uh, patreon.com forward slash Dave Baudry.
1: That's amazing. Well, congratulations again, Dave. That's fantastic. And I want to let you know you are uh, speaking to an ordained minister. If you need anything to catch on fire, uh, please have me do this for you. I would be very honored. And for all of you out there, please participate in this After Dead Patreon thing that Mr. Baudry is doing because uh, now he has a wedding to pay for. So uh, we got to get this thing going right away.
0: And it also involves, you know, creative writing and, and other such uh, creative endeavors, all from my very, at this moment, feeling damaged brain. So, you know, hopefully it'll be uh, good times for, for all involved. So, uh, any feedback you want to go over, Jason, before we get to the business of the week, of which there is plenty. I hope so. Um I just want to say to all you listeners out there all of the dozens, thank
1: you very much for tuning in the last several weeks. We appreciate all of you. Some of our top two top cities of listenership was Los Angeles, California, Wichita, Kansas, Louisville, Kentucky, New York City, Houston, Atlanta and then uh, internationally We had Frankfurt, Germany, Madrid, Spain, and one that shows up a lot anymore is Bradford, England. Thank you very much, guys. We certainly do appreciate you listening to us here and abroad. Uh, The world's favorite niche podcast coming to you every single week, and we love having all of you guys on board. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, I second that opinion. And then, do we have any feedback that you want to go over uh, in regards to anything we talked about last week? That one of the main topics, uh, which I was very near and dear to both our hearts, Jason, was Rocky Four and the uh, the director's cut. Uh, was there any feedback in relation to that, or anything else that we discussed on said podcast? What we
1: got the biggest response on is not human suffering, as we discussed at the beginning part. It was really Rocky Four, and um, which I would expect nothing there was- less. There was some human suffering on my part for that first uh, part of the film, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, some people got back in touch with us, uh, some of the dozens out there, saying that due to our conversation, they decided to double down and find Rocky IV, the theatrical cut on DVD slash Blu ray, whatever they could find in physical media form, possibly VHS, uh, hell, uh, they're, they're gonna buy the old version because they're terrified it might go the way of the original Star Wars releases and also Superman 2 after the Richard Donner cut was available. Uh, mysteriously, these other versions of these films just, Weren't made available. Can't find them anymore. Blah blah blah. So a lot of people uh, out there had. It was a bizarre. Well, I guess it's not a bizarre response because of the dozens. They uh yeah they doubled down on our whole uh, you know mantra of physical media. Collect it now more than ever. And uh, they're going out and they we uh we should actually get some royalty somewhere from someone United Artists. Uh, you know, Sylvester Sloan, I don't know because MGM. they're not going out to, yeah, MGM, whatever. They're not going out to buy the fucking, you know, the director's cut on virtual or whatever. They're trying to find the theatrical cut on DVD now and have it with their collection so that it never goes away. So I don't know what spawned that, but there's now a an absolute rush. Uh, to all the uh, $1 bins in Walmart to try to find this movie. So Very interesting.
0: Well, I'm, I mean, I'm never against uh, finding a physical media uh, source for anything. It would surprise me if the director's cut ended up out uh, outpacing the theatrical version as far as what is available via physical media or uh, through other platforms, because we have not traditionally seen that with Stallone's other director's cuts. His uh, Rambo 4 director's cut I've still never seen, and as far as I know, if you're buying uh, Rambo 4, which is just called Rambo, I believe, um, the one reason um, Burma or Myanmar, um, you, my understanding is if you're buying that in a store currently, it's you know 99% likely to be the original theatrical version. Um, the Expendables, you and I are split on which version is better. You prefer theatrical, I prefer directors. But if you're buying that film on Blu-ray or DVD, it more than likely is a the theatrical version. It's actually kind of, hard to find the Blu-ray of the director's cut. Um, so I don't think Rocky IV will be any different. I don't think it'll be replacing the theatrical version. But again, I, I certainly never um, disagree with anyone finding uh, physical media that they can have for their very own. Yeah, well, that was the feedback,
1: my friend. And uh, that's what's going on. I mean, nothing nothing tops the intro of the show like you getting engaged. So, you know, that was that was pretty amazing. I'm still... I mean, it's it's still stunning right now over here just thinking about it. So it really doesn't matter what the fuck the dozens said. I'm just more taken aback that this happened on air. So congratulations again, buddy, honestly.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. And um, outside of that, the world is a dumpster fire, Jason. I don't know if you were aware of that. Oh, I do. I fucking do. Uh, did you know why? Because it truly fucking is. Indeed, said the ordained minister. Minister? Would you be considered a minister? I think I am called God. Okay, well, that's fair. I mean, I won't call you that, but I'll that I'll I'll accept that explanation. Uh, so, Jason, uh, by the time the dozens are listening to this, it will likely be Thanksgiving or beyond. Uh, you and I are recording it the day before Thanksgiving, by a few hours at least. Uh, half hour by your time, I guess. Um, but Thanksgiving was something I believe you wanted to uh, have a little bit of a chat about. So why don't we do that?
1: Well, this is definitely going to be an OMR old man rant, if you will. It's it's usually we talk about things that really fucking matter, you know, and human suffering and geopolitics that have gone astray and just dogs and
0: cats and- living together. Mass hysteria. Mass hysteria.
1: And it really this time I want to talk about something that was far worse than that. Basically, the de-evolution of Thanksgiving, and it's been covered before, but I don't think to this degree on our program here, the only one that matters, uh, is uh, what the fuck is Thanksgiving anymore? What what really is it? Is it a Christmas holiday? Is it a holiday at all? What what the fuck is this fucking day about? And um, it's about I think Black I,
0: Friday, Jason.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't. That I think you can buy shit cheap anytime anymore. Amazon's made this possible. I really don't know about Black Friday, but it does get into that commerce uh, part of things. I just want to explain that when I was growing up, and 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 Dave was growing up as well, it just. And I think most of the listeners out there, it just seems that Thanksgiving was its own fucking thing. It had nothing, in my opinion. This, you know, it had nothing to do with goddamn Christmas. Nothing. It was, you know, you sat around with your family, everyone had the day off from school or work, and you were just thankful to be in the company of people you loved, uh, whether it be your family, your friends, maybe you invite somebody over a neighbor that doesn't have family or friends, whatever. And it was a time of actual having gratitude, gratitude in your life for the things that really mattered. And... I don't think I'm looking back at this with like, you know, rose prim glasses type thing. I don't think so at all. I think what it is is it's just a holiday that I've realized in the business that I'm in, which I've been in now a billion years in the hospitality, restaurant, food business. Uh, that oh, I thought you we, meant the
0: webcam business.
1: No, I mean, you were talking about me being sick at the front of the program. I'm sick most of the time, but my webcam uh, patrons are the only ones who really know that. Um, it's just one of these holidays that completely has devolved. It's gone away. I'm not even sure
0: why we fucking celebrate it anymore. And Can I ask you why. a question? Go and ahead. I'm, yeah. I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse because I know you were still kind of getting into your, your mindset on all of this, but um, I'll just ask off the top. <clears throat> Do you think for better or worse the pandemic of the last now, you know, 2 years has uh affected the perception of that? It might have,
1: but I don't think it's any any more than any other fucking holiday. Honestly, I think that a bigger holiday for most people is Super Bowl Sunday than Thanksgiving. I think that anything that there's a gathering for is is actually just a bigger deal. The I don't think the pandemic plays into what I'm getting ready to say um, because it's been going on for five, 10, 15 years now. And I've had a real front row seat for this. I really have because of the industry that I'm in. When I was uh, going up through the ranks serving and then managing and whatnot in the restaurant business, we, you know, we would always have uh, Thanksgiving off most of the concepts. Well, most all the concepts had it off uh, because it's just, you know, the the two days that you just can't fuck with an American culture, at least at the time was Thanksgiving. You could not make people fucking work and Christmas day. You could not make people fucking work. Okay. Um, this sort of went away as the, as the years went on, but what I started noticing and what a lot of people have commented on much more uh, than I have in the past is that Thanksgiving has really become a holiday that's lost its meaning because it's really shoved the fuck in with Christmas now. Uh, I can speak for this year, knowing for a fact, because I saw it with my own eyes and I listened to it with my own ears, that the day after Halloween, October 31st, apparently it's now Christmas season. It has gone from fucking Halloween time to Christmas, like nightmare before Christmas is really a thing now in our culture where it goes from bats and death and skulls and titty ween, you know, women dressing as wonderfully as they'd like to in costume or not dressing at all, uh, right into the holy spirit of Christmas. And it go, it's very bizarre that Thanksgiving sort of got, was this middle child between Halloween and Christmas, and it's just fucking gone away completely. So now it's the Jan Brady of holidays? It really is. I'm sorry to say, it's just nobody gives a fuck anymore. And it's just a day of, hopefully you have the day off from work, but really it's more Christmas. The idea is behind Christmas shopping. uh, I don't think anyone gives a fuck about being around their family, or at least they, they, they try to pretend that they do. And the things that we're grateful for, that we should be just having gratitude for every single day, we finally kind of used to shove in to talk about right before you have your your dinner on thanksgiving i think that's all fucking gone and that's well and dandy i guess but ultimately i don't know why we even fucking celebrate this goddamn day anymore it should just be called you know i don't even know like uh christmas day the prequel or something like that it's not really a holiday and when i was in the industry we used to shut down for thanksgiving uh in every restaurant concept i ever worked for but then i finally started getting with some of the question high-end restaurants
0: yeah uh you this is the second time you've used the term, and not being in the hospitality industry I'm not familiar with how mm. the term applies and you said uh, concept um, yeah how what what does that mean in terms of restaurants or hospitality because i'm not, I'm not familiar with that meaning of the the word
1: the the meaning of the word in the restaurant industry is the overall brand presentation of your business, what you do so like for instance, the concept of red lobster. Okay, you would not be thinking about getting a cheeseburger because it's okay. not what they presented you. If you go see Godfather Part 4, chances are very high you're not expecting to see Kevin Hart jump out and start doing comedic bullshit with a gun. Uh It's a concept. And so the thing is that every single place you go, it's the idea of what food and what atmosphere they're providing to you, what to expect. So if you go to a very high-end restaurant, you would not expect, you know... Your burger to come out in, I don't know, paper wrapping as you would, let's say, McDonald's or something like that. Okay. So top, con- top that's of what a concept means. Top of mind branding. Okay. Yeah. And so I, the thing is that when I started working for higher end restaurants such as Fleming's and I was, you know, had friends who worked for Ruth's Chris and things like that. Ruth's Chris was the first restaurant that decided, uh, to my knowledge, a big restaurant uh, concept that decided, hey, we're going to be open on Thanksgiving. And everyone thought that was fucking nuts in the industry. They're like, the fuck are you two thinking? Like, honestly, it's going to have three people show up. You're going to have a bunch of people in the kitchen, a bunch of staff, and no one's going to show up. Holy shit. Were we wrong? Everyone fucking showed up on Thanksgiving day is the biggest fucking day for Roos Chris Steakhouse. They have so many people. You have to make reservations well in advance. Some people a year in advance for this fucking day because people didn't want to spend time with their extended family. They just want to spend time with their, you know, three or four people they had in the house, and they didn't want to fucking cook, and they didn't want to be at home. So everyone started taking note. All the other restaurants who were high-end restaurants, such as Fleming's, you know, such as Morton's, all these people started going, holy shit, uh, we didn't see this fucking coming. So then they started doing it and it started to trickle down. Now, if you're with any kind of food group, a, a particular a restaurant, a hospitality group, and you're closed on Thanksgiving, I think that maybe because the, this is the only thing I can draw in from the pandemic. I think because the pandemic is here and there is a labor shortage. I mean, labor is fully on this our power is fully on the side of labor now. right now, laborers have never ever had more power than they've had probably in the past 50 fucking years. okay they a lot of concepts that we're going to stay open for Thanksgiving, I'm fucking sure in the last three, four, five, six months when we, there's no way we're opening on Thanksgiving. our staff would say suck a dick and not come in. There's no fucking way. So the thing is that but before the pandemic, Every single year, I saw more restaurant groups go, we're open for Thanksgiving, we're open for Thanksgiving, because they realized nobody wanted to stay at home and cook a fucking turkey, or a ham, or stuffing, or have to deal with Aunt Edna, or whoever the fuck, they just didn't want to fucking be there, some people didn't want to be see their own fucking moms, so I mean, that's just the way it is. So that started happening, and I realized that the idea behind Thanksgiving was slipping away, that it's not a home-cooked meal, sitting around, talking to your family, watching a football game, going, throwing a football with each other, none of that shit, which is fine. But I realized this is over. It started to be absolutely sucked into the Christmas holiday because of also storefronts and because of commerce right right after Halloween, like I said, this year, as I've heard in past years... Christmas music began, not just like a radio station that specializes in it or or some shit like that, but the music they're piping in your retail stores and your restaurants and Myers and Kroger and Ralph's and all that is to let you know, bitches... Christmas is here, and it's the day after Halloween now. Oh, I'll do you one so, better. I was what hearing... the fucks with Thanksgiving. It's over for it's the last
0: for the last few years. Shit, you not. I mean, not counting twenty twenty because I wasn't out much. But uh, uh, you know, even before that, I was hearing a lot of times Christmas music and seeing holiday. When I say holiday displays, I mean Christmas specifically in stores in September. Like, it was even before Halloween I was seeing Christmas shit start to bust out. They were busting it out earlier and earlier every year. So I don't think that necessarily is a a new phenomenon, which I'm not saying you're saying it is. Um, I will say one effect that I have seen, I think, that we can attribute to cotton candy, partially because of labor shortage, as you mentioned, and then also partially kind of tangentially to that, um, related but not necessarily exactly the same, is... In regards to Black Friday, for, you know, years prior to 2020, we've seen Black Friday start earlier and earlier on to Thursday into Wednesday, like just trampling over Thanksgiving and making sure retail workers were coming in at, you know, fuck your holiday, get your ass in here because we got money to make. Um, There was a public... You know, kind of backlash against that, but not enough to where it actually affected anyone's bottom line. I think that has changed in the in the aftermath or ongoing uh, cotton candy pandemic, however, Um, because now I'm seeing finally a lot of stores are not just giving lip service, but they actually are staying closed for Thanksgiving and not opening until sometime on Friday, reversing course from what we had seen over, say, the last five or six years prior to 2020. Um, So that is one effect. I do think Cotton Candy has kind of pushed Black Friday back onto Friday, which it had kind of the, you know, had kind of run away with, uh, with Thanksgiving prior to that. Um, but as far as Christmas starting, you know, right after Halloween, I think it's in, as far as stores go, I've seen it start well before Halloween years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's one thing, but I can tell you for a fact that it's the only reason that this fucking changed because ha- this is part of the pandemic conversation. Had there not been, I don't think it's the, it, like, I've said this before and I mean it when it's all said and done. When, when the cotton candy has ravaged every part of the planet and everything's gone to shit and this is how this is how it all goes down, um, we will eventually get this pandemic put in a corner. And people will die, people will live, people will get vaccinated, people won't get vaccinated, whatever. It lives with us, but we're going to get through this as a species. Okay? No, one, no con- one
0: puts cotton candy in a corner, Jason. No kidding.
1: Um, what I think is that after all of that is, is gone, when, when cotton candy's behind us and all the politicians that are bitching and moaning about vaccination, using it for political reasons, once they're all out of office or dead um, by cotton candy or not, the one thing we're going to be left with, and I'm pretty goddamn sure about this at this point, well, I am sure, is our new perspective of work, is that the what's changed in the labor force and our employment model because of the generation that went through this pandemic, it's not going to fucking change. I've talked about it before, but I mean it. I don't think that they had a fucking choice. Matter of fact, I think it helped the company's bottom line not to do it. Not because of how many people would have just said suck a dick and quit, but because they couldn't make any promises to guests. For instance, in the restaurant business, they couldn't have said, Hey, we're going to give you fucking stellar service on Thanksgiving. If you don't want to be home and cook because they know for a fact, nobody's showing up. None of their fucking people would show up. And a lot of businesses that are retail couldn't make those promises either. They couldn't go, "You're going to have great service. We have tons of fucking supplies." They don't, and you're going to get in and out. You can't because there's not enough fucking people. I think that Especially that's what's going with gonna,
0: supply chain issues as well. Like a lot of times that's what I mean. mean yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's not enough of anything. So it was, it wasn't that there was some sort of good hearted fucking nature. Like you'll see signs oh, no. on doors or that there was on, on websites. We think that our people deserve to have a day. Oh, fuck you. It's cause you couldn't execute this day. Labor's got management and corporations over a barrel and it's just fucking them. They know what's going on now. That's why they got Thanksgiving off. And we kept going on the same course. No. Nah everything would have been open. It's the only thing that even secured a day off. So what I'm trying to say is that even though you've got that day off, I don't think it really matters to anybody. I don't think Thanksgiving matters. I know a lot of people who don't even celebrate it. They don't go anywhere. They might have the day off, so they just sleep in. It's kind of like a Labor Day that they actually get Labor Day off on. But Thanksgiving is this, uh, like, old school thing that I believe that when we're like 60s, 70s, 80s, we're going to be explaining to our grandchildren if they even you know, unplug from the fucking metaverse long enough that this was an actual holiday and this is what we did on it. I think they'll just look at us like, what? It's like they won't they simply will not fucking understand what this entire holiday was about because it's just been bored up. It's been assimilated into Christmas. And it's just weird that it's no longer anything that we associated with As, as children, it's become this holiday that's absolutely gone. The only thing that matters to the public out there about Thanksgiving is, god damn it, they should have that day off. That's as far as that goes. As far as the celebration, and by the way, I'm not throwing this out as it's good or bad. What I'm saying is, it's officially dead. It's a dead holiday. It's it's as dead as the fucking turkey you're consuming. It's fucking dead. So it is very bizarre, I guess, in being 46 and just seeing how this holiday went from being something that it was to something that it's not even a fucking thing anymore. And really, it's about commerce and being assimilated into the black hole that is the Christmas holiday, which I guess goes from Halloween all the way till mid-February now. I'm really not sure how long Christmas goes. I'm already fucking done with it. But I thought it was an interesting point of conversation to see what the dozens out there not only thought about Thanksgiving, like if it even matters to them anymore, both like in your family and just... I guess how you run your life with your business and making money and, and commerce, like buying shit, what does Thanksgiving mean to you? When you hear the word Thanksgiving, not thinking of it like it's on the front of a Hallmark card, What in your daily existence now as a human on this earth, does it matter? Does it even matter as a fucking holiday anymore? So I guess that's what I was throwing out is it's just an interesting... um Springboard to jump off into a conversation and thinking of it as: Is it really even a thing
0: anymore? And where could the dozens possibly let us know their opinions of this? And I'll also add uh, if they also have any uh, travel stories that they want to tell us. Because after this weekend, like right now, as far as I know, like this this week has picked up. um, You know, from last year, obviously, as one of the major travel you know, weeks slash long weekends of the entire year. Yet there is still supply chain issues, yet there are still, um, you know, employee shortages and such. So I would imagine a lot of those travel experiences might not necessarily be the, uh, the most seamless on the face of the planet. So um, any, any Thanksgiving stories that you want to share from your own experience this year or your opinions of what we've talked about therefore, Jason, where could they send those stories and opinions? You can send it to this
1: wonderful email address that actually fucking works and is still in existence, called Ask Dave and Jason at ProtonMail Because, well, god damn it, protons! I have, hey Dave, I got a question for you, buddy. Yeah. Because we're we're on the Thanksgiving uh, thing. So that we answer honestly, this question, both you and myself, I want to take, I want to make it a kind of, let's qualify it. Um, What are you thankful for the most outside of your family? And for you listeners out there, if you have kids, your kids, because that's a de facto thing, because even if you're not thankful for them, you're going to fucking say it to make yourself feel better about your life. Outside of that, Dave, what are you thankful for?
0: Um, the ability to pursue things that I'm genuinely passionate about as a means of, you know, making a living, paying rent and, and not, uh, not hating a job or hating my boss. So I think that's up there. What about you? I think that
1: the thing outside of my Mr. Monkey mini me clone thing, um, that I am most grateful for is my friendships. Um, truly, is that um, as I've gotten older, the friends that I have um, throughout my life, I've, I've kept. They are extremely valuable to me. Um, they're worth more than, than anything on this planet to me, is that I got a group of guys and gals out there that I consider the expendables And uh, I know they'd save my ass in a minute and I'd save theirs and have brought me such joy and clarity and just a warmth that I guess I didn't expect this late in the game, which is not that late, but it's, you know, I'm on the other side of the hill to really, really be grateful and thankful for. I, I, more than anything else, I, I am very thankful for all of them.
0: Nice. And likewise, dozens, if you want to share uh, things you are thankful for, we will absolutely uh, take those, take that feedback as well. Just remember to finish each one with that timeless phrase, Jason. Fuck you, Dr. Cosby. Indeed. Because childhood is dead. I don't know if you knew that, Jason. Sure did, bud. Sure sounds like you did from your previous uh discussions today um but what isn't dead in regards to the thanksgiving holiday is it is still a major weekend for movie releases and one of those releases we touched on briefly in the past we've kind of talked about it uh in the abstract uh over the the weeks leading up to now but uh it did come number one at the box office uh this past week it uh throws back to childhood for sure it has been delayed like four times before finally finding a release date. thanks to cotton candy and that is of course ghostbusters afterlife jason uh trying to avoid spoilers obviously as much as possible but we wanted to discuss this a little bit uh now you couldn't spoil it even if you wanted to because you haven't seen it uh but uh someone else has so what feedback did you want to provide on that and then i will respond
1: Absolutely. I got a great review from a a friend of ours, but I wanted to ask you a question just real quick before we, we get into it. And just let me finish the question because I'm, I'm not clear on, on this in this movie, the Ghostbusters afterlife is Egon dead or is he stuck in the upside down?
0: Um, I don't want to mention too much. Egon or his family or anything, because again, depending on what trailers you have or haven't seen, some of that could, uh, could foray into spoiler territory. I will say this, Jason, the things that you thought you would not like about this movie, you were probably right about the things that I thought I would love about this movie. I was right about. So I think we would both find what we were looking for in the viewing of said Film. Now I have seen the movie. Um I will give my thoughts on it after uh, said review that you were about to go into.
1: Okay, so a wonderful, the number one contributor, almost our uh, behind-the-scenes showrunner producer, uh, Joe Baca, the mighty Joe Baca, has uh, seen this. He is a humongous Ghostbusters mark, just right up there with Dave Bodry, And uh, he saw it, and this is his wonderful review that he sent to us, and it is as follows. It's entitled, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Childhood is Dead, but Comedy is Hard. All right, so here's my spoiler-free review of Ghostbusters Afterlife. If you've ever wanted to see a serious and reverential take on one of the biggest comedies of all time, this is the movie for you. Like a lot of recent fanboy properties, i.e. Kevin Smith's He-Man reboot, the new Ghostbusters falls into the ghost trap, get it, of taking itself too seriously at times, and forgetting what made these characters and the franchise fun in the first place. It also has the unenviable job of course correcting the franchise after the 2016 uh, Paul Feig, how do you say his name? Dave uh, Feig, something like that. Feig, something directed reboot that completely ignored the earlier films and characters to disastrous results. I won't go into the plot too much uh, at all because of the details, uh, but because the trailers do enough of that already, in fact, I saw all of the trailers beforehand and unfortunately I knew pretty much every beat of the movie as it played out, including the cameos from some of the original characters. But that being said, as a fan of the franchise since 1984, I did enjoy the movie, even if it was a little too long and a little too serious at times. The star of the show is McKenna Grace, who plays the granddaughter of Egon Spengler. She does a fantastic job of channeling the weird, quirky nerdiness that was so brilliantly played by Harold Ramis. The majority of the movie is all about her and her relationship to the grandfather she never knew. And I was surprised at how well that storyline played out. The other standout for me is a young actor by the name of Logan Kim who plays a kid named Podcast. For someone so young, he has a fantastic sense of comedic timing and turns in a hilariously goofy performance. Podcast steals the show and definitely captures the weirdo charm of what made the original Ghostbusters fan favorites. Speaking of which, the OG Busters are in this movie barely, but it was nice to see the classic team in action one more time, if even for a little moment. The final scene of this movie is what's going to make or break a lot of people's enjoyment. Some people are already outraged, and others are very moved by it. I can't say more than that without spoiling the moment, but it did work for me. There's also two scenes after the credits. One is just a fun callback to the 84 movie, and the other, which was apparently filmed very, very late in the game, sets up the future of the franchise, hopefully. There's a lot to nitpick, obviously, and after a few days of the fanboy high wearing off, I realize the plot does have a lot of holes, but at the end of the day, it's just nice to have the Ghostbusters back. Even if it's just fan service and nostalgia for 40-year-old nerds, sometimes all you need is a Twinkie, you know, to hit the spot. I do hope that the future films will do something new and stay away from endless rebooting and remaking of what's come before. It'd be nice to see if the next one is, you know, funny. But if you're a fan of the first two movies or the cartoons or anything other than the 2016 movie, you're probably going to enjoy this. This was sent from the mighty Joe Baca, and he uh, he really enjoyed the film. But uh, uh, talking to him and uh, kind of texting back and forth, he did say that uh, it was very serious, and he would have liked it to be a little more Ghostbusters comedy. So anyway, that is Joe Baca's review, and now I send it to
0: the great David Beaudry. Chewbacca is wrong. No, I'm kidding. I just love saying that. But um the I do just I agree with some things and I disagree with others and of course I will clarify uh again without uh, giving away the store as far as uh you know plot details and such. Um I disagree with Joey about the tone. Um there were I thought it was a really funny movie. I, there I, the humor is a little bit like it I would say the humor is different than the original, um, but I would say it would have to be because the original you had some of the greatest comedic actors of their generation, along with some of the like the talent that you had on that first film. Like mm. trying to replicate that to reproduce it, even they couldn't do that a couple of years later. Even though I like Ghostbusters two more than a lot of people do, it certainly you know is the inferior film compared to the first one. But um, I thought the I thought afterlife was really funny. There were many times where I was cracking up and, and genuinely just you know, very amused by things that were going on. Um, I agree with McKenna Grace. I thought she was you could not have had a better casting choice, especially as someone who you know, the trailers clearly showed was a, a descendant of, of Egon. And I think that you know very much kind of kept. Uh, the spirit of, of Harold Ramis uh, involved in the in the film in, in ways that he as a person would not have have been able to. They they did a great job with that character. Um, they did a great and she did a great job with that portrayal and very much channeled a sense of Egon without uh, mimicking him, um, which can be really tricky to do, especially for for younger performers. So I I thought that was great and she was great. Podcast, I agree, was a great character. There were times where I thought the writing of him was a little—he uh, was a little overwritten at times. But performance-wise, I can't—you know—speak against the the actor. One of my biggest issues, and I don't think this is a spoiler, you know, because and also it's something you see even in the in the trailers. One of my bigger issues, as far as I wouldn't necessarily say plot hole, but it certainly is a little messy. It's just how easily, like these children that have never seen this equipment before, are just immediately able to master and figure out how it works and what this button does. And, you know, like at, at one point, again, I'm not going to consider it a spoiler since it's in one of the early trailers, but they have, there's a trap that's on a, almost like a, you know, a remote control car kind of vehicle and they're, you know, one's driving a car and the other one's controlling the, like, I couldn't do that shit now. And, you know, and yet they're just without a, missing a beat. And they even established, like, a character had failed a driving test and yet he's, like, doing donuts with this, like, old school, you know, ambulance and, you know, drifting around corners and shit. So... With McKenna's great, with McKenna Grace's character, it made sense. I was willing to suspend disbelief more that she'd very quickly be able to figure out how this stuff worked and why it worked and what it was meant to do and all that kind of stuff. I was willing to go with that. But when you have like podcast and her brother and like you know other others figuring out just very quickly how to how to use this you know highly technical you know subnuclear equipment, I understood like they didn't necessarily want to spend a lot of time showing a learning curve. But it, it came a little too easily to them for my for my liking. I'm like, doesn't it take any talent to do this kind of shit? Like, so um, that was one of my bigger kind of element or issues with it. Uh, but the cast all around I thought was great. I do think in the third act they tend to revisit beats from the original movie especially. At the same time, there's a bit of a hidden logic there um, because there's a reason why certain beats would be revisited because it's almost like there's a process or a procedure that must be followed. Um, I thought Paul Rudd was, was great. in the whole cast was great. Carrie Coons is great in it as, as, um, as the mother. Um, so, uh, I, I really loved this movie. Um, I expected to enjoy it. I very much did. Uh, I think the concerns that you had, Jason, those concerns would definitely bother you. um, like, I think you would get what you were expecting to get, and I think I also got what I was expecting to get. I was happy with what I got, and I think you would still have the same problems with what you... I would still recommend you go see it, because um, I still think there will be elements of it that you very much enjoy. Um, I, you know, I never saw the the 2016 one, because, it again, if it was... I had no interest in seeing a Ghostbusters film that was going to bring back the original Ghostbusters actors playing roles that were not the original Ghostbusters, like... If you finally get Bill Murray back in a Ghostbusters movie and he's not playing Venkman, I have no interest in seeing that fucking film. Um, and the trailers just looked bad. Like I had just no interest in that movie whatsoever. Um, the way this one ends, I would be okay if they launched a bunch of sequels where you never see the legacy cast again. Like I think. This at least gave us either the Ghostbusters 3, or if you consider the old video game that Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd wrote, you know, canon, then the Ghostbusters 4, depending on whether you're counting that or not, um, that I've, I've always wanted where there was at least even briefly one last ride with the, you know, the legacy characters. And then, you know, after that, we'll see where it goes. I loved this film. I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but um, I, I did find it funny. The first film um, very much had more of a horror vibe to it than what people tend to remember. They tend to remember just more of the quirks and more of like Bill Murray, you know, quack and rise and all that. But there very much was a, it was kind of a, a blend of horror film with comedy. And this one, I think, follows that very much so. So I never found it self serious. The moments that it really took seriously, I thought it took seriously with merit and that tonally, I thought it it, it hit things just right. Um, I very much am looking forward to seeing it again.
1: Well, I will definitely see it eventually. I really will. Uh, it's not something I'm avoiding. It just wasn't on the docket of things I, I, I was going to do sure. uh, right now. But uh, if I was... So you say that if I watched it, some of the concerns I had, I'd be like, yep, yep, yep. Would, would I, Jason Bailey, from talking to me, would I sit in a theater and go, oh, it's it's Stranger Things, the movie? Yes, would, to would a degree. I, okay. And that's what I was afraid of. Uh, it, that, you know, you would just do everything that you'd already seen. On, to, to me, and I haven't seen it, and I'm going to see it, so I don't want to piss all over it without right. seeing it. But my my reaction when I, I mean, this is what, how many years ago did they first start? showing this shit like a year and a half ago or something about 2 some years because it was
0: supposed to release in 2020.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and I mean all I thought of is a room full of people saw stranger things and went, "Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, this Ghostbusters as this." And that's why it got made. Uh and then I thought and they just led up to kids, town, supernatural it's just Stranger Things. That's really all it is. So me, I, will wa- I will watch it and get, and you know, I would love to be proven wrong to where I'm watching something going, well, that was
0: fucking good. You know what I mean? I would love that. I will say this, Jason, there is one thing and I can't say, I can't even allude to what this is. You know, like, um, Joe Baca mentioned that the trailers gave away a lot of, I, I thought the trailers did a, a good job of not giving away too much. I mean, there's not a lot of surprises in the movie. Sure. But um, there was one particular thing in this film that I can say legitimately shocked me. I don't want to say what it is. I don't want to say any, any inkling of how it was or implemented or whatever. I will say that because of that particular surprise, I recommend to you, Jason, that you see it in a theater.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, After you uh, see it I'll review. tell
0: you privately what that surprise was.
1: <clears throat> yeah, it's a good review. Yeah, that's that's great. That makes me want to go see it. You know what I mean? So that's that's really good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, I was uh and and there are a lot of people who are very, very happy about this this movie. So I'm ecstatic. Hopefully it's a it's a good situation on that.
0: Yeah. And uh yeah. dozens. If you have seen the movie and you would like to share with us your thoughts, uh, we may or may not be able to read them on the air, depending on how spoilery they are. But by Mm. all means, we would love to hear about them. And you know where to send them. Yeah. I wanted to talk real quick.
1: Uh, I wasn't obviously. I haven't seen the movie, but I love Ghostbusters. And I think that because Dave is such an uber mark of Ghostbusters, sometimes maybe the listeners out there don't know how much I'm a mark of the original film. I really am like the the original Go- I still have I mean the soundtrack on vinyls from my youth I fucking love it I love the original Ghostbusters don't really enjoy Ghostbusters too or the cartoons or any of the other bullshit that's come out or I'm not and I'm not one of these that's into Ghostbusters lore or you know cosplay like I've never dressed up like a ghostbuster like I'll, I, it's a big deal it's got its own fucking fanboy whole universe out there that worship the entire
0: Concept around um, Ghostbusters, but Can I let love me love the say something film. very quickly on that. Uh, that is one thing that I found initially confusing, and then a little concerning once I found out after what it was. This isn't a spoiler either, but in the opening credits, meaning before the movie has started, and all you're seeing are the you know production companies that had worked on it, Sony and all that stuff. You will see a thing like called Ghost Core or the Ghost Core or something like that. And I remember thinking at the time, like, what the fuck is that? Apparently that is Sony's hope for setting up some sort of Ghostbusters like cinematic universe and it'll all be done under this Ghost Core name or company or however the hell they're setting it up. That idea concerns me, because again, I think it's I think everybody wants to do a cinematic universe without deciding the stories they want to tell that would actually justify one. Um, so that was one thing that came to my mind as you said that, Jason. That that does concern me. Apparently, that's what that ghost core thing means, but it doesn't actually show up or play any in Afterlife, the movie at all.
1: Yeah, well, it's very interesting because I guess it was just off my radar as a fanboy that this was not just a love film by everyone. I mean, you don't run into anybody on this fucking planet. And say Ghostbusters and them not light up. Everyone loves this movie. I'm talking about the 84 movie, okay? For whatever reasons, I just, it was off my radar. I just didn't realize there's a whole goddamn group of fanboys that. This is their Star Wars. This is their fucking thing where they dress up, go to conventions, have blueprints on fucking proton packs, the whole goddamn thing. Anyway, there's a lot of trivia and shit that I know about the 1984 Ghostbusters because that's the film that I fucking love, okay? I've watched all the behind the scenes shit on it. I just, the whole concept behind it, Dan Aykroyd's coming up of it, the writing of it, everything. And, um... I wanted to share a little bit of that with you guys tonight, and I didn't know which angle, because I know, like, shit tons of stuff about this movie. The one thing I wanted to talk about with Ghostbusters tonight is just a small little story that you might find interesting, because I like music, like, a fucking lot. And I think all of us know, you know, the the song, the Ghostbusters song, the Ghostbusters theme by Ray Parker Jr., uh, who you gonna call ghostbusters and i think a lot of you out there know some of the controversy behind that song but what i want to do is just review it a little more in-depthly so that i could add something to our ghostbuster conversation so tonight i want to tell you something that in 1984 um, when they were making ghostbusters Huey lewis and the news was approached to do music at just a single for the movie for promotional use Huey Lewis at the time uh, said that they were not. He was not interested. The band was not interested. He was the spokesperson for the band, and a lot of people have said well it was because he was getting ready to do music for Back to the Future, which is about a year later. That's incorrect. Huey Lewis was not in production doing anything with soundtracks. He thought that doing a soundtrack. Any song for a soundtrack would lessen the brand of the the band, the band's image. And oddly enough, the rest of the band went along with his decision. Well, what happened was that when Ghostbusters came out, Ray Parker Jr.'s fucking song was, well, it's iconic. Everywhere. Everyone knows the Ghostbusters theme song. Every single motherfucker out there can sing it, hum it, when it comes on. Matter of fact, I believe Afterlife has set it to, like, a scoring. Everyone knows it's the Ghostbusters theme. Like, it was iconic. So, (laughs) you know, ergo, about a year later, Huey Lewis didn't just write one song for Back to the Future. He wrote, like, two, three. He's in it. I think he just went, well, shit, we need some of this fucking action. And the band was like, you know, Huey, we... We really probably should have wrote the Ghostbusters song, goddammit. Well, what's interesting about this story is that after Ghostbusters came out, and that song was fucking everywhere, wall-to-wall, playing on MTV, on constant rotation, t-shirts, who you gonna call, all this shit, and everyone knows the Ghostbusters theme song, Huey Lewis listened to the song, obviously it was on his radio every morning he got up, and thought very strongly that the song sounded like his song, I Want a New Drug, a lot. And so the bass riff on it is very similar. He filed a lawsuit against Ray Parker Jr. And they, he sued him for an undisclosed amount of money. This will come up later on in the fucking story. Um, the, however, this was decided. It was decided that the music that was I Want a New Drug was a shit ton alike to Ghostbusters, particularly the bass riff and the track, the beat tracks, okay? And in music, if you talk about a bass riff, musicians know what that that is, okay? So Huey Lewis won a lawsuit against Ray Parker Jr. It's stealing the his concept for I Want a New Drug, you know, that whole song that was very popular at the time. All these years go along. Huey Lewis collects his money. I guess he gave some to the band. I hope so. Maybe the news got some. I'm not sure. This was in the mid 80s. He won this lawsuit saying that that song, you ripped me the fuck off, Ray Parker Jr. But they had signed a non-disclosure agreement on the amount or to really ever talk about it again. In 2001, now 15, 16, 17 years later, after all this shit went down, Huey Lewis does an interview for VH1's Behind the Music, which is a very popular documentary series. I think it might still be, but definitely at the time it was hot to trot. They talked to every band about every controversy that ever fucking happened. And they covered with Huey Lewis in the News this lawsuit. In the fucking interview, Huey Lewis says, yes, he stole the song. I I guess that because they couldn't get us to do the soundtrack, they wanted something that sounded just like I want a new drug and I won this money. He blabs his mouth. Well, get this. Ray Parker Jr. is watching VH1 17 years later and knows that there's still a non-disclosure agreement against what happened in that courtroom. Ray Parker Jr. now sues in 2001 Huey Lewis and gets most of the money fucking back he gave him 15 fucking years ago. They came to find out it was $5 million. Okay. That's the wealth that they should not have talked about. Huey Lewis wasn't supposed to open his fucking mouth about it. So these two men are just passing money back and forth through the years over this whole goddamn, who are you gonna call Ghostbusters? This whole fucking controversy. This is in 2001. 2004. Premier Magazine, which was the, <laughs> no pun intended, Premier Magazine for cinema files out there, I guess. Uh, it was basically just sucking ass to celebrities in the film community they do an interview with everyone who worked on Ghostbusters because it was the 20 year anniversary edition in it. It is stated by everyone who was involved that they were using. I want a new drug as a track in the background of a lot of promotional material to basically show themselves. This is the kind of music we want to, for the Ghostbusters theme that we're going to use in a promotional package through MTV. This is the first time. This wasn't even brought up in court back in the mid-'80s, okay? So he was like, you motherfuckers, I knew it. I mean, now he's pissed again, and he's also lost the $5 million. But it was the first time, for sure, they realized that Ray Parker Jr. had been sent materials from, I guess at the time it was a Columbia Pictures, whatever it was, saying, this song Just Ghostbusters, proving that Huey Lewis was probably fucking right. Much, I mean, I have to say this in defense of Ray Parker Jr. He had three days, three fucking days from the time that he took the assignment to spit out a song for MTV. Three, and he came up with "Who You Gonna Call?" Ghostbusters, which sounded a lot like "I Want a New Drug." Okay. Now, this is the final act of this fucking story, and this is the coup de grace. In 1979, a song came out called Pop Music by a band M, as in, like, you know, the letter M. The leader of the band, the writer, the head dude is Robin Scott. I want all the dozens out there to go listen to this song called Pop Music. You know, talk about it. Pop Music, talk about it. Pop music. It was a huge song in 1979. And the bass riff goes something like this. Just like that. It's far more prominent as the Ghostbusters bass riff than even I Want a New Drug. But when you listen to it, you can hear the bass riff of I Want a New Drug. And here's the most bizarre fucking part of this whole thing Robin Scott has not sued Huey Lewis of the News, has not sued Ray Parker Jr., has not sued Columbia Pictures, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Slimer, nobody. This is the motherfucker who came up with the actual bass riff that's been going back and forth in court for like a billion years. And only musicians really understood this. They started going, but that bass riff is highly specific. And it is
0: fucking Robin Scott. It reminds me of when Vanilla Ice was on uh, Arsenio Hall, and he was trying to explain how the bass riff of Ice Ice Baby was different than Under Pressure, if you know anything about music and bass. And he's trying to, like, emphasize, like... It's this one is dun 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 as opposed to dun 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 like and Arsenio's was looking at him like bitch are you fucking crazy? Well, anyway, it, funny. it just made me think of it and it's hilarious. It's, it's, you're absolutely
1: it. right. I just think it's hysterical that this this poor bastard, you know, talk about it, write about it, pop music, talk about it, pop music that that song has never been brought into the legal conversation, but musicians know. That's really where that bass riff come from. And it's so specific, not even Huey Lewis, the news, when they did, I want a new drug, could have just fucking came up with this. It's the same thing as, that is John Deacon in Queen under pressure. You can't just come up, that was his fucking riff. So when Vanilla Ice was doing that shit, he was basically saying because of the separation of the... The first and second part of it, where he, like in Ice Ice Bay, is like, it brings it in quicker, right? So he's just different. Vanilla Ice's management was like, bitch, we are paying Queen. We're not going to court. We always knew this was going to happen if this song ever blew up. And of course, they just handed over millions and millions of dollars to Queen. And, you know, they were all happy with it. They're like, as long as we get paid, fuck Take all our goddamn music. We don't give a shit. But I want the dozens out there. This is a real controversy. It's fucking hysterical that this $5 million just keeps getting passed around because Ray Parker Jr. and Huey Lewis are pissed at each other. But go back and listen to M's pop music, and then you will have the fucking laugh of your life when you you have that song in your head when you listen to the context of the story.
0: I mentioned this earlier, and we've talked about it, I think, at least briefly on previous episodes, Jason, but you, your current uh, game console of, co- of choice, I believe you have, a, you have a PS3, am I correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, so I highly recommend uh, if you get a, a PS4, would it be on PS? Well, yeah, because I got it on 360. So yeah, PS3 would probably be able to play it. Um, Ghostbusters, the video game. Because it was written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd, and they actually got Bill Murray back. They got Harold Ramis and and Ernie Hudson and Annie Potts, and like they even got uh, Atherton back as. Uh, oh, as I Peck. love him! I fucking love. They him. got. I they love got got that actor. everybody back almost Sigourney Weaver's not in it, but they got uh, almost everybody back, and it plays like a legitimate Ghostbusters three. So if you are a mm-hmm. fan of the first film, or even the, or the second film as well, because it does reference the second film. Um, then that video game, and they remastered it for modern consoles as well. You can get it, Ghostbusters a video game remastered. Um, it's great. Like the gameplay I think is fun, but more importantly than that, and you play a rookie that they just hired, and they don't want to give him a name in case something blows up and he dies, that they don't become emotionally attached to him. So you're just known as the rookie, and your job is to like test out the new equipment that that Egon is is building and, and all this. So you get to go out on missions with Winston and Egon and Ray and Peter and like hang out with them and hear them banter back and forth. And you never speak, which was brilliant because you get to listen to them talk the entire time. Uh, it plays like a third film. Again, I'm not sure if there's anything in Afterlife that directly uh, would contradict that canon or not, but um, it's 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 worth seeking out. Yeah,
1: that's really cool. You've told me about it before, and that's definitely something. I I think I'd be more interested seeing that than, than the movie that's in the theaters right now, actually. And,
0: I mean, you so. could you could download or find, like, video of it on YouTube and pretty mm-hmm. much watch the entire story. But, I mean, I certainly think it's more fun playing through it and actually experiencing it for yourself. Uh, last subject of the week, Jason. Um, security at Barclays Center seems to suck. Um, so... <laughs> or the fans are just more passionate. Yeah, I,
1: Either way, you don't really know how to call that one. Well...
0: This is not the first time this has happened, hence uh, why I, I put it this way. So Seth Rollins got attacked by a fan on live television on Monday Night Raw this, well, past Monday, uh, at Barclays Center. What I had not realized until I started reading up on it was that at Barclay Center, because I would not have remembered this, Barclay Center was also where Bret Hart had infamously gotten tackled by a fan at a Hall of Fame ceremony when they were inducting Jim Neidhart. And that fan like got into the ring and tackled Bret. And, like, fucking other wrestlers were on top of mm-hmm. the dude before security could even... Like, Travis Brown, who's now Ronda Rousey's husband. I forget if they were married at that time or not. Like, he actually jumped the rail and got there before like security did. Um, meanwhile, you know, fast forward, you think they would have learned something from that experience. Uh, Seth Rollins is up on the ramp uh, just after doing this segment with Finn Balor and all of a sudden this big fucking dude just full on, like spears him off the ramp. And then like they get into this whole scuffle before people show up to finally pull them apart. Seth, I thought kept his head as well as anybody could have been expected to, um, But holy, like, what the fuck is going on at Barclays Center? Like, I understand it's a big building. You got a lot of people and stuff. But, like, your one job is to prevent people from jumping the rail and especially getting either A, to the ring, or B, to the ramp. And this is the second time in a short period of time where they have just had abysmal failure with that. Mm Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, the guy's name that tackled him is Elijah Spencer, I came to find out. And uh, I guess they're doing some behind-the-scenes research. He doesn't suffer from mental illness, to my knowledge. He's never had a criminal record. He wasn't on drugs or anything. What they are saying, oddly enough, is that he was apparently catfished online by somebody posing as Seth Rollins, you can't make this shit up, folks. I had and not that, heard this. This is yeah, this is all new shit, and that uh, he had donated money to fake Seth Rollins, like fake or and he man, and this Seth Rollins wannabe catfish thing, uh, you know, scorned him on his social media and didn't pay him back some shit, crazy-ass shit, and this was his fucking comeuppance. He was going to show Seth Rollins you couldn't take his goddamn well-earned, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings gift card and get away with it. So I don't know, but that seems to be where the investigation's going. Motherfucker never had one fucking blemish on his... He didn't even have a criminal record to have a blemish on. But uh, yeah, Elijah and Spencer, he, uh, boy, he speared his ass. And I'll tell you, I don't even really like Seth Rollins, honestly. But no one deserves that. You're a performer. It's just like a, you're doing a theater production. Oh, well, was blameless in that whole thing. Yeah, and then one of the, you, you know, your audience members gets up and, and fucking beats the shit out of you. So, I mean, I'm just glad he kept his head about him. But it led me to think, Dave, about uh, some other wonderful uh, fan interactions that we could talk about in our last segment we got a little bit of time that's nice we didn't even get to wrestling last week uh and uh yeah that's sort of where my my mind went with this whole thing because it's a part of wrestling we've never talked about is fan interaction that shouldn't be fucking happening, where a fan inserts himself into the action in some way.
0: Well, before you go there, I'll also say this. Like, I guess there were some reactions online, including from Chavo Guerrero, of all people, that were, like, giving Seth Rollins (sighs) shit for, like, not handling the fan or, like, letting the fan get the better of him or whatever. It's like... This was a big fucking dude that blindsided Seth Rollins who had no idea he was coming. Like, and Seth still, I mean, regardless, like, even if Seth hadn't done anything to the guy, like, I would hold Seth blameless in this situation. Yeah. Fact is, he grabbed him in, like, pretty much a, a front face lock, and, you know, yeah, they sorry. scuffled around a little bit. And, you know, he threw a kick at his head, I think, as they're pulling the dude off and all that. But, like, this is not a conversation about whether Seth Rollins can or can't actually fight. Like, that's kind of irrelevant to the entire entire. entire conversation but regardless like he got blindsided by this massive fucking dude and on national television and was trying to keep a cool head and stay in character and like he had a lot of shit going on full credit to seth for how he handled it like i just thought like Chavo trying to give him shit over that like is fucking absurd but anyway continue
1: yeah, so anyway, I you know, Dave, I don't know if you've got one that you'd like to talk about at all, but uh, sure. there, we could talk about any of these I think between you and I, we know about a billion of them. I, re- I mean, I know a lot. I was thinking, should I cover the one with Bruno Sammartino, where Fred Blassi almost got shot by the mafia? Uh, should I call talk, talk about the one with Jesse Ventura, where he almost had to whip a man's head off with a wet towel and could have done it it's just at his size at that time? But what I really wanted to land on was something that might really warm the cockles of your heart, sir. There is two fan interactions that's almost a one-two punch to one of our favorite rivalries with our favorite performer of all time. And I'm talking about Roddy Piper versus Hulk Hogan in two separate incidents that were not back to back but goddamn close. One was in Starcade 1996 and one is in Halloween Havoc 1997. And I'm going to co- I'm going to cover it real quick. And I'll hand it back to you for your stories or your or your thoughts on it. But what's interesting about it, we have talked just recently about Halloween Havoc 97, which is the fucking classic Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio match of match, 10 out of five stars. Okay. I mean, it was amazing, this fucking match. Uh, And we already covered it. But what's interesting is something happened later on that night that I'm going to get to. In 1996... Uh, Roddy had re entered Hulk Hogan's universe as a big time adversary, this time playing the face against the dastardly Hollywood Hulk Hogan, who was the uh, head of the New World Order, the NWO. And they decided that on their biggest night in Starcade, which I believe usually happened in November or December every year. December, uh, typically. December. Oh, yeah. They were going to have the main event, uh, the war that didn't settle the score of them getting it back on and and getting into a wonderful main event between the two of them. The night goes on. The match is fairly decent. Piper's doing his shit. Hogan's doing his. And this time, of course, we get to all cheer Roddy Piper because he's the hero. And Hogan's doing his Hollywood Hogan bullshittery. What happens at the very end of the match is always bothered me it's always fucking bothered me just a little bit because I love Roddy Piper and I hated that this is how this went down at the very and this is spoilers so I'm sorry I'm just gonna tell you what happens at the end of the fucking match um, the giant that was Paul White's name at the time is lifting Ruddy Piper up in a choke slam position. Okay, I don't know what the fucking spot was supposed to be. I don't know if Piper was supposed to bite him, kick him. Hogan was supposed to get involved. I really don't know. Hogan's in the ring too, so uh, I mean they've got everyone there is you know th- where they're supposed to be. All of a sudden, a fan. From, I believe, around the second or third row in main camera view, where they position the main camera, jumps the guardrail and jumps in, like tries to get into the ring at this fucking time. He doesn't succeed because the ref is seeing it, fucking Hogan's seeing it, Piper in the air, because I've watched it like the Zupruder film. He's seen it from the corner of his eye. So you know they're all like, there's a fan. There's a fucking fan. And this is at the very end. And I don't know if the fan thought he would go help Piper by like, I think you know, that
0: was the idea, but it's hard to say, yeah.
1: By kicking the giant Big Show in the nuts. I really don't know what the guy was doing. But at any rate, security jumped in pretty fucking quick. Everyone started getting involved. I don't know if Hogan got a kick in to keep him out of the ring. I think he did. But but what happened is the, the fan was... They got around him, but they couldn't really get him out of fucking sight. They were scuffling with him all around the ring. Now, it is referenced to in the commentary by Shivani and I think Heenan, some people who were calling the fucking thing. This is at the very end of the fucking match. Piper gets out of whatever the fuck the giant is doing to him and gets around Hogan and applies his signature sleeper. Okay, Hogan does it perfectly. He's selling. He's doing his spots. But if you watch that match closely, and this should be the focus of the entire arena, is that Roddy Piper finally, after all these fucking years, has got the sleeper on Hogan and Hogan's succumbing to it. If you watch that match, which I think you guys should, to show you the power a fan who gets in the way has, no one's watching this. Not very many people at all. They're all watching the scuffle That is trans, that's happening between secure WCW security and this fan. So here Hogan's arm goes up once. Hogan's arm goes up twice. Hogan's arm goes up three times and falls, meaning he's unconscious. He's been put to sleep. He's knocked out. Piper wins the match. Piper gets a clean fucking victory over Hulk Hogan after a billion years. The audience erupts. However, as a wrestling mark and a fan, and a Piper mark and fan, I know that moment was fucked. It was fucked because no, uh, most of the arena is not watching Hogan and Piper. They're watching this scuffle with this goddamn fan, and I. It's never been really talked about, but I always wonder: Did Piper go, you mother? Fucker! because this is a big moment now for people watching at home yeah they cut away things like that but even the reaction of the crowd the pop is sort of like oh oh he won it's like they didn't see the moment that piper won because they were watching this fucking fan now i'm gonna let you respond to that day but let me get to part two they have another pay-per-view at the beginning of of fucking 97 okay whatever Halloween Havoc comes up in 1997. This time, it's a cage match. Hogan versus Piper.
0: It's about 10 months later.
1: Yeah, in a fucking cage. And they're like, this is pretty much going to be the culmination of the whole goddamn war between Piper and the NWO. And this is how it's going to get settled. Okay? Rage in a cage, or as Jim Cornette called it, age in a cage. Anyway... They get in there. They do their Piper Hogan stuff. I think both of them did the best they could in a in a cage match and and these kind of things. Okay, Piper. End- I know.
0: Side note: Piper was not a fan of that actual cage. I guess it had like a like kind of a distance from the apron to the cage, and the bars are kind of big. And he, he was like, the cage was not what I thought or what we thought the cage would be. And he's like, it did not play to our strengths at all. But no, anyway, it didn't. He Roddy but- was not happy with that match. But continue.
1: Yeah, well, what happens in this match is almost a sequel to what happened in December of the previous fucking year. Now it's October 97. They're in a cage. The cage is legit locked, okay? But at some point in time at the very end, and I don't want to give away the whole thing if you want to see the whole match. it's It's, no. it's not bad. The NWO gets inside this fucking ring. Okay, and there's like a fake Sting, which they were doing a lot of that shit. Time They'd have jobber wrestlers or security guards in Sting masks. Or Kevin Nash. Yeah, but what I mean is they'd have unknown people. Like, they would just have jobbers doing different Sting. Like, is it Sting? Is it not Sting? Which was always easier than fuck to know if it was Sting or not because you knew what his fucking body looked like. But at any rate, Piper is now handcuffed to this cage. Poor Roddy Piper... The cage is a piece of shit. It's been pushed all the way now to the audience. Piper can't get out of this fucking thing. It's legit handcuffed like chains. So the audience is touching him and shit like this. Hogan's got him pressed up against the thing, slapping him. You know, it's going to be a schmoz. It's like a disqualification thing. Macho man's in the fucking cage now, part of the NWO. They're all beating on Piper like he's some sort of martyr, like he's wrestling Jesus and he's being crucified and all this shit. Anyway, out of the fucking crowd, I shit you not, comes another fucking fan. Only this one is far more agile and young. And he (laughs) makes his way up the goddamn outside of the cage and gets inside the cage. He gets inside the fucking
0: cage. I remember Savage being the MVP of this one, but continue. Okay.
1: (laughs) Hogan and Savage are beating, you know, wrestling Christ up and for all the sins that he's dying for us. Somebody, the fake Sting, which I don't know who this person is. It's easily looking, you could look it up. He runs after him. He sees this is a fucking fan who should not be in this goddamn, how did he get here? I don't even think people saw how he got in. Now, they can't get away from it. The commentary can't get away from it. So, Shivani and Dusty Rhodes are now commenting because security can't get to this motherfucker. He's in the goddamn, like a fishbowl of insanity. The fake sting guy jumps on top of said fan, gets him in a corner. Hogan is on the other side of this cage. We're talking the other, about 20, 25 feet away, is smacking the fuck out of Roddy Piper, but he realizes the audience is reacting to something that's not him which, what a sin, looks over in the corner and he sees what the fuck's happening. So Hogan disregards beating up Wrestling Jesus Piper over here and makes a beeline for the fan and at some point tells the other half of the Mega Powers, we have a fan inside this cage. The other half is the insane macho man himself. Okay, I I think
0: Hogan was like, I think that fan was looking at Liz, brother.
1: Yeah. Now, Macho, now, now, Macho disregards the fucking goddamn show altogether. Macho's like, ooh, this is gonna get good. They both run to this other corner and just basically look at fake sting jobber mid-carter like, get, 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 we, we, we got this. And this is where it begins. Hogan gets him like in some kind of front face lock. Then Randy gets him from behind. And I don't know whose idea it was. It was either Hogan saying, we got to work with this now because the the, the fan had a Sting, like, I think face paint on. And he said, we, maybe Hogan's pretty smart with this shit that we could use this. Like Sting's fans are trying to rescue Piper or some shit. Randy just looked at it like fresh fucking meat they put the motherfucker in the ring they got him from being secured in the corner of the cage to now motherfucker inside the ring they do a shot of Roddy Piper who's just there being mauled by the fucking fans on the outside of the ring he doesn't he can't even participate he's just standing he's just there crucified Hogan is now in the ring. Macho's in the ring. Macho takes this poor little bastard who looks like he's about 20 years old, doesn't look like he's fucking had a beer in his life, got him from behind in a full Nelson, standing full Nelson. And and Hogan is throwing working punches, which are fake, big fake punches, but they're potato working punches. They're enough to register if you weigh 150 pounds, which looks like this kid did, okay? Okay. And, and fucking Randy ain't letting anybody go. Fucking WCW security is trying to get in this goddamn ring. Doug Dillinger, who's like 60, is trying to get in with his little henchmen. And Brad, and ha- Brad Hart to break talking them about out. how
0: useless Doug Dillinger was. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> they're trying to get in the ring. Now it's not to basically beat up the fans and get him out because he's fucking with the storyline. They know Randy Savage, and they're like, we have got to save this child. (laughs) Randy's going to fucking bone-saw McGraw his ass. Like, we've got to get him out of here. So they're in there, and Randy would not let go. He schoolboyed this kid until he it was pried out of his hands. But what was fucked up about the situation is, yet again, this is the last two or three minutes of the pay-per-view, and here, once again... Piper's big show that he's trying to put on something and Hogan gets interrupted again. And this time it's really fucked up. What's interesting about this story is for the next, I mean, it's been a billion years now, 20 years, more than 20 years, people have debated this fan. He's become like a conspiracy theory. Of course. This one nameless fan, was he a plant or was he real? From Jason Bailey's super Mark fan, I can tell you this was a fucking fan. This was a fan who should not have gotten involved, and he basically worked himself into a shoot. He climbed up there like, I'm going to fucking do some stuff and get some attention. Hogan was smart enough to go, well, fuck, Randy's going to kill him. Maybe if we just work him in like it's a, a, a Sting fan that came to help Piper, we'll, we'll play with him a little bit. Randy just wanted to fucking kill him. But at any rate, it's where fans... Shouldn't be. Even Scott Hall himself said until he went to WCW, he never understood the passion of a fucking wrestling fan. Don't touch the wrestlers. Why are you throwing Coca-Colas and and fucking toilet paper at us at the end of every goddamn pay-per-view? He didn't understand it, but I I really want you guys to go watch those matches because twice, Piper and Hogan's big finishes got fucked by fans.
0: Interesting note on the Halloween Havoc thing, too. An easy solution, you would think, would be what... You know, the, the cage is on... you know. Uh, wires typically. Why couldn't they just lift the cage up? Because Piper was still Piper was chained to, to the side of the cage and that would just like rip his shoulders which were already in bad shape like yeah. right out of the sockets. So they couldn't lift the cage up without first unhooking Roddy, which they were not in position to do. <laughs> no. So that's why they couldn't just simply lift the cage up so someone could slide in underneath is because Roddy would be going wherever the cage was going.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I mean, I just, I feel so fucking bad. I really do. Because this is the last time that Halloween Havoc, you could really make the case for Piper and Hogan were both in some sort of ring condition that they could work with each other. That was their finale. That was, I mean, they they dealt with each other in WWE, but to me, Piper was not Roddy Piper I mean, wrestler was on his accident, A-game so anymore. Yeah, in, yeah no he opinion. just wasn't. And this was the end, and then when the first time that he legitimately beats Hogan, some motherfucker steals that spotlight too. It's just like, you goddamn fans, they don't need your help. It's a fucking show. Sit there and watch it. But I can't think of a worse idea than being an unauthorized participant in a cage match or a cage where Randy Savage is there. I can't think of a worse scenario. Well,
0: we're at time, but I'll uh, I'll very quickly just... uh... You know, bullet some some examples of where this is, has occurred. Some of them also involve Roddy. One of the more infamous ones was his quote unquote retirement match, WrestleMania 3, uh, Pontiac Silverdome. After he had put out Adrian Adonis, he's in the ring. Some fan jumped the rail and runs into the ring and jumps on Roddy's back. And if you actually check, you can see, like, I, this is one I've mo Like, you see Roddy, the expression on his face change, and he, like, spins around, and he's ready to kill somebody. And in one glance, he immediately sizes up the situation and realizes this dude is, like, an overzealous fan that's trying to celebrate And in a split second, Roddy breaks into this big grin, gives him a handshake and like a hug and leads him right over to security that then tackle him. And then Roddy waves goodbye to him as he goes through the ropes and leaves. Like Roddy was ready to like fuck this dude up. And then just in a split second, read the situation is like, and immediately knew what to do in order to to handle it in the, the quickest and most efficient way possible while still not breaking the kayfabe of it. Another Piper one was I forget if it was WrestleMania in the build up to WrestleMania one or WrestleMania two. Jason, you'll probably know, where Mean Gene was doing that interview with or, with uh, Piper and Orton on the street somewhere, and then the fan tried to jump on him or whatever, and like Orton was the one I think who caught him first, but they both mm-hmm. just stiffed the. Fuck out of this dude! Oh yeah, um, was that WrestleMania one or WrestleMania two? It wasn't. That's, Russell, that's was WrestleMania.
1: It? That's WrestleMania one. That's okay. a great promo package. But what's interesting? You're right. Orton took care of business. Uh, and then Orndorff wasn't far behind. And if you watch it, Piper didn't have to do much of nothing. Piper was the boss man, just kind of sat back and let these two yeah. take care of his fucking light work, <laughs> which I thought was great for his character. He He always had a good sense of what he should be doing while oh, yeah. on camera. And any wrestler, any fucking professional wrestler who came of age or worked in the 1970s, they really do have a love hate with the, the fucking fans because it was a real deal. Kayfabe was alive and those fans believed that you were the villain that you you portrayed in front of them in the ringer on TV or you were the face. You were the. He- so for a lot of these guys who were heels, they were fighting from the time they got out of bed and left their fucking homes to the time they came back.
0: I was in the crowd at a, I forget if it was a, I think it was a TV taping, but I don't know if this actually was part of TV or if it was something they did just for the house show or just for the, you know, the uh, live crowd, but it was 90s, you know, 98, 99 um, East Lansing, Michigan at the Breslin Center. Stone Cold Steve Austin is in the ring after a match or a segment or something he's doing is, you know, celebratory, whatever Fan tries to jump in the ring and one of the hepners they're identical twins, so I don't know if it was Dave or Earl, but uh, who had just refed whatever the match was or whatever that had just occurred, sees him from across the ring, fucking dips his shoulder and right as this fan is getting in between the ropes, gets beard right out of the ring from the from either Dave or Earl Hebner. And then Hebner starts just kicking the shit out of him outside of the <laughs> ring. And Austin clearly knows what's happening, but he knows there's a camera on him and he doesn't even look that direction. Like you can tell he knows what's going on, but he never acknowledged it. And I always remember being in the crowd, seeing that. Then there was another infamous one. I forget when it happened, but I remember where, where someone tried to jump in on Triple H and Triple H uh-huh. is not known as... As a fighter, but Triple H was like "fuck this" and went all in on on beating the shit out of him. And again, I don't blame him. Like you know, no, so I don't attack you. Fuck him. Like
1: yeah, so those I are a couple either. examples.
0: And then there was one that resulted in a lawsuit. It wasn't in the ring. It was in a hotel lobby. I forget if he was with WWE at this time or if it was when he was with WCW. But Paul White. This is what made me think of it. Uh, the Big Show was in a hotel lobby. I forget if he was just doing whatever, checking in or whatever. Some fan saw him and like took a flying leap, like run across the lobby, jumped off a couch and took a flying leap at him. I don't know what he expected show to do if he thought he was going to sell it or what. You know, white sees him coming and then just holds up his fist and punches him right out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> the dude tried to sue him for assault, and thankfully, you know, got nothing out of it because, you know, either the, I don't know if it was judge or jury, but whoever it was was like, um, no, like he totally was acting in self-defense. So those are a couple uh, big examples in my head, and that's I think that's our show, Jason. Unless you have anything else to add before we uh, we go into Thanksgiving. No, that's that's it. Uh, I'm very thankful to be on this program with the great David
1: Bowdry and uh, it's it's been great. It's still. It's still real to me, damn it. It really is Thanksgiving. But uh, yeah, this has been great. And thanks for listening, guys. We certainly appreciate having each and every one of you. We really do.
0: And likewise, Jason, I'm thankful to be on the air with myself as well. You should
1: be. I mean, you know, you're your only <laughs> friend. Keep it I love up. you, buddy. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, Jason. No, thank you very much, my friend. And also, congratulations. This is a big deal.
0: Thank, thank you, you very, very much, for much. Sharing and that with me. As well. Thank you. And for the Dozens... And dozens Oh blisters out there I am Dave Beaudry And I am still your Jason Bailey And we are one day closer to dead But that day is not It will not be today So until next week Have a happy holiday